All right, welcome everyone joining us on Zoom. We're gonna get started in just a few seconds. So come on in, get comfortable. And welcome to all of you here in person. Uh, you've walked past the refreshments, but if at any point you need to help yourself, they will be, they will be there for the remainder of the event. So welcome to another evening lecture hosted um, at Francis Tavern Museum. This one is being brought to you by the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society. Um, remember, if you're joining us virtually and you have any questions, uh, please leave those in the Q&A box. We will be monitoring that. If you are here in person, just please hold your questions till we get to the Q&A period. Um, we'll be bringing around a microphone and we will try to get you as many of those as we can. Now, as always, the views of our speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York or its Francis Tavern Museum. Now that that's all out of the way, please join me in welcoming Todd Hirsch, the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society, who will tell you a bit about their upcoming programs and introduce tonight's program. Good evening, everyone. As Sarah said, my name is Todd Hirsch. I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society. Quite a mouthful. Um, we're so excited that you're all here with us tonight, both in person and online. The um, interest in this program has been tremendous, and we're just so excited to have you. Um, I also want to thank our very gracious host, Francis Tavern Museum. Um, when I reached out about hosting this program here, they were, they were so excited to have us, and we're so appreciative. It's just a perfect venue for this talk, and so um, again, we're so happy you're here. Um, I know you're all here to hear from Ben, so I won't take up too much time, but I do want to um, say a very special thank you to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs who made this event possible tonight. Um, their generosity has made uh, a lot of events that we're hosting this year possible, and so thank you to them and to all of you because it's funded by taxpayers. Um, our May and June is very, very busy, and so I just wanted to highlight a couple of our upcoming programs so that hopefully you can join us. Um, this Sunday at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which is just a few steps away from here, we are participating in the Mishpucha Festival, or Mishpucha, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, so if you have interest in Jewish genealogy or Jewish culture, please stop by that Sunday all day. Um, next week on May 24th, we are going to be joined by two archaeologists from the Landmarks Preservation Commission to talk about their new book, Buried Beneath the City. Um, that'll be both in person at our offices, which are on West 44th Street, and also online. So please join us for that. On June 6th, we are having a program about Latin American genealogy. I'm not going to try to butcher the Spanish, but it translates to my people were here too. Um, it's really an introduction to Latin American and Hispanic genealogy with a particular emphasis on Puerto Rican genealogy. On June 8th, we're having an introduction to heraldry, also an online program. On June 15th, another online program, we're going to be talking about how to use DNA to find an immigrant ancestor's Irish origin. And then at the end of June, we are having a film screening of The Six, which is a documentary about the six surviving Chinese passengers uh, from the Titanic. So that screening will be at Lincoln Center um, at their uh, amphitheater. And this, if you can believe it, is just a sampling of our program. So if you're interested, 
in learning more about some of the other things we have coming up, please go to our website or ask me after the event. Um, since so many of you are not familiar or sort of new to the NYGMB, I just also want to talk about some of our um, programs that we have. Um, if you're interested in um, learning more about your own genealogy and doing a research tour, uh, we have uh, online research tours that we call Empire State Exploration. Um, these are three-day programs um, held entirely on Zoom, and um, they're really intimate, and you get to ask a lot of questions of, a, of genealogists, so they're great experiences. Um, in June, we have one focused on New York City genealogy. In August, we have one on New York brick walls, so if you have a question that you just have spent years trying to figure out the answer to, bring your question to, to us in August. Um, in September, we have a program on the Hudson Valley, and then in November, we have one on New Englanders in New York, because that was a very um, popular route of migration. We also have in-person research tours. In June, we're going, I told you June, we're going to the Genealogy Center in Allen County, um, which is in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then in October, we have our annual trip to Albany, um, where we will explore the New York State Library and the New York State Archives. We are also going to Europe. Um, in September, we are going to the Palatine region of Germany. Uh, we'll be going to Spire, we'll take a river Rhine, uh, Rhine River cruise and also explore some local vineyards. And then in October, we're going to Scotland where we will be going, we'll stay in Edinburgh, but we'll also take a day trip to Glasgow and um, visit some, some great sites in Scotland. So a lot going on, please visit our website, reach out to me, um, you can email education at nygbs.org if you have any questions about any of these upcoming programs, and we hope to see you um, at a future event. So now I am going to introduce our president, um, Joshua Taylor, who is going to say a few words, and then we'll get to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Todd. As you see, he stays very busy, and we appreciate uh, all of your support of the many programs that we do. I also want to specifically uh, say a thank you to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs. We received a grant, uh, which was our first grant ever from the Department of Cultural Affairs last year, and it enabled us to do more free programming than we've ever been able to do in, in, in the history of, of the NYGNB. So we're, we're grateful for that. Uh, and the execution of that lies squarely on, on top shoulders. So thank you for, for all of your work. Uh, our speaker tonight is Dr. Benjamin Karp. He is the Daniel M. Lyons Professor of American History at Brooklyn College and faculty at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's the author of Defiance of the Patriots, the Boston Tea Party and the Making of America, which was awarded the Koch Books Prize from the Society of the Cincinnati in 2013, and Rebels Rising, Cities and the American Revolution. He's written about nationalism, firefighters, wet nurses, Benjamin Franklin and Quaker merchants in Charleston, for scholarly journals such as Early American Studies, Civil War History, New York History, the William and Mary Quarterly, and popular publications such as BBC History, Colonial Williamsburg, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. Dr. Karp received his BA from Yale University and his PhD from the University of Virginia. He previously taught at the University of Edinburgh at Tufts University. His latest book, which those of you in person have a copy of, uh, courtesy of the Department of Cultural Affairs, is The Great New York Fire of 1776, A Lost Story of the American Revolution. Please join me in welcome, Dr. Kirk. Thank, 
Thank you, Josh. Uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, be giving uh, my second talk in less than a year on behalf of the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society, uh, and also to be back here at Francis Tavern, where I've given at least one, maybe two talks before. Um, you can watch the other one because C-SPAN was uh, there too. So, um, uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, and thanks to all of you for coming out, uh, and to those of you online who are still in your slippers. Uh, thank you for joining <laughs> us. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, I used to say pajamas, but now I, I wonder whether that's too suggestive. Um, all right, let's. Um, oh, I, I should pull up my uh, thing, shouldn't I? Um, nobody, nobody bothered to put my uh, PowerPoint here, so let me just pull that up. Um, here we go. Okay. So yeah, this is the book that you have uh, in your hands. Um, so uh, the talk that I'm uh, that I'm giving today is uh, is designed to be for uh, an, audi an audience of genealogists, and specifically an audience of genealogists who might be interested in um, looking at marginalized people in history, people who are not sharing. Sorry. Well, luckily. share when I was younger, um, clearly the lesson didn't take. Um, okay, so uh, this uh, this lecture is designed to, um, to be for an audience of genealogists, but also um, th this particular grant they told me is um, uh, is meant to emphasize people who are looking, might be interested in looking into uh, the ge genealogy for marginalized peoples. Uh, and of course, this is something that historians are uh, 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 try to do this kind of research too, to recapture the lives of marginalized peoples who weren't writing their thoughts down as much, who don't appear in the records uh, as consistently, et cetera. So I, I had to do a little bit of that work for this book. And so although my book talks about a lot of things having to do with the fire of 1776, uh, this particular talk will be emphasizing that. Um, so uh, what's really exciting about being able to give this talk here at Francis Tavern is that we are mere steps away from where the action, main action of this book happened. Uh, of course, my, the first chapter of the book is all about revolutionary New York City and colonial New York City. Uh, and so you would be able to read about, um, about taverns as places where people uh, organized themselves politically on behalf of uh, the resistance movement against the acts of parliament or, you know, conversely, um, uh, in, fa in, in favor of the British crown, uh, if, if you were a loyalist, uh, on the eve of the American Revolution. So it's really exciting to kind of uh, be in this space, be at this site, uh, and be thinking about how the politics that led to the revolution, um, what, what things were then like uh, a year or two later when New York City was at the center of a war, right? So, um, so this book, uh, the, the main purpose of it, of course, is to uncover the, the movement behind a singular but relatively unknown moment in the American Revolution. This fire that destroyed, uh, that almost destroyed New York City on September 21st, 1776, which is really just a couple of months after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. At the time, Manhattan was at the center of a violent and uncertain civil war, the factious process of nation-making and state formation, and the clash of two armies who did not always act in accordance with Enlightenment ideals and committed um, th things that we might call atrocities. And this was something that we would see on both sides. Six days before the fire, on September 15th, 
the British had captured Lower Manhattan, which precipitated a panic retreat by the American troops of the island. Uh, so when we're talking about September of 1776, right, we think of 1776 of this year of heroism, the year of the country's birth, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're looking at September of 1776, the American cause is not in a good place. Now, um, I have some interesting issues that I'm wrestling with, uh, that I wrestled with for this project. In considering the cause of this fire, most historians who have written about it in the past either threw their hands up and said, ah, well, we may never know the truth. Or they, these historians believed the story that the American leadership and the Patriot press told, which is that the fire was a mere accident. Now, um, I can get into these disavowals. I've done that in some other talks. Uh, but you can assume that the public pronouncements of George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson after this fire were, wasn't us, how dare you? It was a perfect, it was a perfect retreat, uh, et cetera. Um, most um, eyewitnesses, however, uh, almost all of whom were British or supported the crown in some way, believed that American rebels had deliberately sabotaged the city six days after the British occupied it. Um, so as evidence, right, there's a few things that I could point to. According to dozens of rumors throughout the summer of 1776, the Americans said that they were going to do this whenever they retreated. Although the authorities denied this, the rebel authorities denied this, and this is important, it's not clear to me that Washington and his fellow officers could have prevented elements of the army from setting the city on fire, even if they wanted to do that, which I don't think they did. Um, Secondly, on the night of the fire, many observers said that it broke out in several places at once. Um, third, uh, British forces apprehended dozens of people tampering with firefighting equipment or carrying incendiary materials or actively trying to light buildings on fire. And in a few cases, uh, as you can sort of see in this image, uh, the British soldiers executed people on the spot. We're not sure exactly how many, but we know that this took place. And so, Based on this evidence and other evidence that I've accumulated, I argue in the book that American rebels did burn New York City on this occasion. Although it's possible that George Washington gave them his blessing, and I have some evidence that I think seriously points to that, the men and women who burned New York City, if they burned New York City, might have defied their own officers regardless. It seems clear that their aim would have been to target a British garrison and naval base, to target the property of wealthy loyalists in the city, and to target the Church of England. Uh, Trinity Church uh, was said to have been a particular target of the fire, and this is what happened to it. Uh, this was the first of the Trinity Churches, the one that now stands on the corner of Wall Street and Broadway uh, is the third. Washington later shied away from authorizing destruction like this, uh, at least when it came to white settlements. He was fine with burning Native American towns. Uh, but for New York City, the damage was already done uh, uh, prior to him having made this <laughs> resolution. Um, so what we have uh, are a number of imperfect, somewhat corroborated sources, either from immediately after the fire or from several years later, identifying people who were involved in the burning of New York City. Some of these sources mentioned American captains, right? Uh, American officers with the rank of captain. Uh, trying to pin the deed on American officers and therefore, by implication, uh, pinning responsibility on George Washington himself. Many of these sources mentioned New Englanders, in particular New England captains or New England soldiers, which makes sense given the composition of the Army of 1776 and also makes sense given how much New England rebels had antipathy toward New York City uh, specifically, and I can talk more about that later. 
Um, so my talk today is going to focus on particular perpetrators who were identified by the sources. The first, called the first incendiary, was a woman who may have been summarily executed by British troops. The second was a, quote, mulatto man. Uh, so in other words, a mixed race man who might have been Pequot, might have been of African descent. Uh, he was part of a group of eight Connecticut men, two of whom, including this mixed race man, uh, were thrown into burning houses and killed um, uh, after having been caught trying to do this. The third story I'll talk about uh, is that of a 57-year-old New York City tavern keeper, right, in keeping with our theme here at Francis Tavern, who became a prisoner of war. And fourth, a Scots-Irish spy who was hanged by the British for espionage in June 1777. And if you put together the social profile of these four incendiaries, what I think emerges is a picture of the most radical elements of the revolutionary movement in 1776. Many of the revolutionary leaders were comparatively conservative, right? If we look at John Jay or George Washington, they wanted to get rid of the British, but they also wanted to maintain order and hierarchy, uh, you, you know, and thought about the revolution that way. But there were other revolutionaries who, you know, were at the kind of radical, the radical fringe, right, of the revolution who were trying to push the envelope uh, in various ways. So see if you're convinced by the story I'm about to tell. All right, let's talk about the first incendiary. This is one of my favorite stories. And actually, I tell her story most fully, um, not in this book, but in a volume of essays called Women Waging War in the American Revolution, uh, edited by the military historian uh, Holly Mayer. Um, and so I have a, an entire essay just about her, and it's really fun. And I think I actually still have more to say about her. So as you can see here, um, a, a London newspaper reported that the first incendiary who fell into the hands of the troops, this is on the night of the fire, was a woman who had been provided with matches and combustibles. Now this news was meant to shock London readers who were conditioned to believe that women belonged at the home front, tending the hearth fires, not in the center of a war zone, starting house fires. So to a British newspaper audience, she was vivid proof that the American rebellion was some kind of crime against the natural order. What is she doing there? Why is she setting fires? This story was partially corroborated by two unprinted accounts, manuscript accounts that I found uh, over the course of my research. Um, the first was Henry Strachey, a member of parliament who was serving as secretary to Admiral Richard Lord Howe uh, in Lord Howe's capacity as peace commissioner. From the Eagle flagship, uh, Strachey uh, had witnessed the fire and he wrote to his wife that British soldiers and sailors had killed five or six arsonists and seized other incendiaries and contrivers. He added, one woman was caught with a match and her hands covered all over with gunpowder, which she had been kneading into balls. The second account was uh, the 1783 testimony of Private George Kerr of the British Army. Kerr remembered entering a house behind St. Paul's Chapel which you can still visit today um, because it survived the fire, uh, where he found five men and a woman. He saw a five gallon keg of gunpowder, more gunpowder scattered about, and a bundle of matches. Matches were about this long, and uh, in those days, we're not talking about them. Um, the soldiers then seized the men, uh, and when the woman cried and offered me money, Private Kerr wrote, uh, to let them go. She hoped, evidently, that Private Kerr would look the other way and let her escape the clutches of the British soldiers. But instead, Kerr recalled, I took the money and I carried the five men, the powder and the matches to the provost. But he left that part of the story. What happened to the woman? Now, normally the laws of war protected women and other non-combatants, right? Soldiers were not just supposed to go around beating up on women and children. 
but there was an exception. If a woman were to take up arms, or if a person was to act as an incendiary, uh, all bets were off, right? Uh, soldiers were allowed to kill incendiaries on the spot if they caught them in the act, uh, on the spot if they caught them in the act. And a woman taking up arms could be treated in theory like, uh, like any other soldier. So back to the newspaper account. Her sex availed her little, for without ceremony, she was tossed into the flames by the soldiers. At this moment, remember, the bonds of authority were a little bit loose in Manhattan. Civic institutions had been suspended months ago. The American army and most of the civilians had fled the town, right, uh, uh, in advance of the British army. And the British army had only just begun its occupation six days before. And loyalist civilians had only just begin, begun to trickle back into the city um, and take their property back over. So in that kind of environment, I think it gave Brit license for, and especially because we're talking about in the midst of the chaos of a fire, right, that this gave license for British soldiers to punish people who they caught in the act, including a woman, uh, in ways that they might not otherwise have done. And this allowed Americans to, um, uh, and, and in the meantime, also that environment of chaos also allowed Americans to disavow responsibility for the fire. We weren't anywhere near there. We didn't have anything to do with it. We don't know who this woman is, is, is effectively what they sort of say in the history books. So, uh, so this first incendiary, for instance, is completely ignored in the rebel press. She's mentioned in London newspapers. She's mentioned in these two manuscript sources, but American-based newspapers do not mention her at all. Don't make any suggestion that there might've been a woman involved in setting New York City on fire. Now, the question that's probably on your mind, since I haven't given her a name, is who was she and why had she done it? Um, and here I can really only speculate. Maybe she didn't own any property in the city, either because she was too poor to own property or because she came from out of town. In either case, maybe she wouldn't have cared about setting the city on fire. I don't have a stake here, right? I don't want this city to fall into the hands of the British. I'm gonna help out these men who are trying to set New York City on fire. One thing that's interesting is that the area which she was where she was discovered behind St. Paul's Chapel uh, was known as the Holy Ground, uh, the red light district, the neighborhood that was notorious uh, uh, for prostitution. So maybe this woman was a sex worker, right? Uh, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, or maybe, right? She was a politicized New Yorker, a daughter of liberty, who was you know, defending her, uh, her hometown as a patriot. Perhaps as a matter of honor, she made the affirmative choice to burn houses rather than let them fall into enemy hands. So in other words, not just a chaos agent or somebody who doesn't care about property, but somebody who's willing to sacrifice New York City's property in order to avoid having the city fall into the hands of the British. And this, by the way, very interestingly, is how Edmund Burke portrayed her when he mentioned her on the floor of parliament. Uh, and this was well before he turned against uh, the excesses of politicized women during the French Revolution, right? So this is years before he's writing about the French Revolution. Uh, in November of 1776, he's giving this uh, a speech on the floor of parliament um, saying that women, even women who were rebelling against Great Britain, um, that he might admire them for their patriotic self-sacrifice. But normally what we see in history, whether we're talking about the French Revolution or the Paris Commune or other incidents, normally what we see is women being denigrated for political participation uh, as, as having done something really monstrous. Uh, but so instead we see these two contrasting images of women holding torches. They could either be patriotic and engaging in the kind of noble self-sacrifice that you expected from women and men in a republic, or you could say, oh no, these women are going against the natural order uh, and they are monstrous. They should have snakes coming out of their head 
uh, in the iconogra iconographic representation of discord or chaos. So um, again, without knowing more about who she was, uh, we can only speculate about which image or maybe some other image of women uh, we ought to hold in our heads in thinking about the kind of woman who might help to, to set New York City on fire. All right, on to part two, New London's Motley Crew. The night before the fire, rebel forces in New Jersey dispatched eight arsonists uh, to row across the Hudson River. These were Connecticut soldiers, almost certainly from Colonel John Durkee's 20th Continental Regiment. One of these arsonists was a mixed race man, as I said before, and although no surviving records, oops, um, I accidentally did something down. Um, here, let me uh, pull it up again. Uh, I hope that it's still being shared. Yeah, I might, I might need your help. Um, Still here, maybe. Um, Zoom slideshow. Okay, let's hope we're still good. Uh, sorry about that. Okay. Um, although no surviving records list the names for this unit's rank and file, most of the men, uh, I think, were probably from New London County, um, and several were of probable were almost definitely of Native American or African American descent. In 1776, most whites felt uneasy about the idea of vengeful non-white men carrying guns and torches, but Durkee, who had a storied career as a radical leader um, and had commanded several people of color uh, 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 throughout his, uh, his career during the Revolutionary War, he evidently trusted this brown-skinned soldier enough to send him on a whaleboat to burn New York. The loyalist lawyer, John Le Chevalier Room, heard about this mixed race soldier on more than one occasion. And his informant was none other than Colonel John Durkee himself. In June of 1776, the rebels had imprisoned Room uh, in New York on account of his loyalty to the king and eventually transferred him to, New to Norwich, Connecticut. Toward the end of December, while Room was walking around out on parole, Room ran into Durkee, who was back home in Norwich recruiting men for a new regiment. And so this is after the fire, and Durkee tells Room that he had been second in command at Falls Hook, New Jersey at the time of that fire. Then he told Room that at 8 p.m. on September 20th, 1776, he had sent eight men in a whaleboat across the Hudson, one of which was a mulatto with directions to land behind Trinity Church among the stinkweeds. Room understood from Durkee's story that the expedition's design was to set fire to the city. Durkee then saw the fire breaking out in several places, and then six of the men only returned in the boat. One of the white men and the mixed race man had been thrown into the fire and burnt to death, the mulatto into Ames House in Broad Street, right? I crossed Broad Street on the way here from the subway, right? So right around the corner, right? This mixed race man met his death. Now, granted, this is a secondhand story uh, uh, told many years later, um, but there is some, some semi-corroboration for this story too. A couple of contemporary accounts from 1776 mention a boat full of incendiaries rowing across the river from New Jersey. Furthermore, we know that several soldiers of color from New London County were recorded as dead or missing during the tumultuous week of September 16th to 15th to 22nd. The most intriguing candidate, I think, um, is a man named Charles Scadawab, a, a Mashantucket Pequot from Groton, who was an active leader in his community and a veteran of the Seven Years' War. Skywa was reported missing on the 22nd, along with a handful of other men. 
Although he belonged to a different regiment, not Durkee's regiment, he may well have found himself at Paulus Hook with Durkee after the chaos of the September 15th retreat and then joined this expedition and possibly met his enemy. So it's, it's, it's hard to know. The men of this whaleboat detachment uh, committed a risky and radical act on behalf of the Patriot cause. We don't know why Durkee bragged about this clandestine expedition while he was talking to a committed loyalist from New York City. Um, his own commanders, after all, by then, had disavowed any American involvement in having set the fire. But assuming Room was telling the truth about what he had heard from Durkee, Durkee was evidently not ashamed about having, uh, about having sent a multiracial motley crew to burn New York City. Um, now, the next story that I want to tell, um, we're going to get into actual names. I want to talk about this 57-year-old uh, Dutch-American tavern keeper named Abraham Van Dyke. Van Dyke was a former, former felt maker, and he seems to have been a middling leader of the city's militarized artisans and craftsmen, who had a long-standing tradition of class-based, uh, class-conscious activism. Van Dyke uh, supposedly had served along the British as a Marine Lieutenant during the Seven Years' War. He kept an inn with an enclosed tennis court at the corner of Broadway and John Street, uh, where he hosted public spectacles uh, for money, uh, such as um, uh, an 11 foot cow uh, and a chained leopard, right? Come see it, have a drink. Uh, you know, this is to, to entice you into in the door. As the captain of the New York Grenadiers, which was an independent company of militiamen in New York City, he also hosted drill exercises and meetings of local militia officers. When the war broke out and British troops evacuated their barracks on June 6, 1775, so over a year before the fire, a crowd of rebels stopped the British soldiers, confiscated their spare weapons that they were trying to cart out of town, and then hid those weapons in Van Dyke's tennis court. During the summer of 1776, Van Dyke's grenadiers helped to build a circular battery on the Hudson River, and they also harassed a loyalist wine seller named Christopher Benson, causing him to have to flee for his life. Uh, and then this regiment of grenadiers was folded into the Continental Army. Now, when the British took Manhattan on September 15th, most of the American army fled northward up Manhattan Island to hang out in what's now Harlem and Washington Heights. Um, but Van Dyke himself was left behind. According to a friend, Alexander, General Alexander McDougall, an important New York City patriot, McDougall is writing a couple years after this. He says about Van Dyke, he being a heavy fat man became so fatigued in the retreat from the city of New York that he had to hide in the woods. British troops then swarmed over the island and cut off his, retreat, cut off his retreat to the northern part of Long Island. And so finding no prospect of escape, he had to kind of turn around and walk back down into town. Um, where he hid himself in the Leary family's uh, livery stables on Cortland Street. He then, uh, and this would have been what his uniform, uh, uh, this would have been what his uniform looked like. He then um, enlisted a Negro man to bring him food, perhaps one who had, who he himself enslaved uh, or uh, somebody who had been enslaved within the Leary household. Now Van Dyke himself, right, being this big guy and a militia captain and everything else, he was recognizable to the city's inhabitants, right? To the loyalists who had returned, et cetera, et cetera. And probably to many British officers as well. So he was not gonna be able to venture out in British occupied New York City without being captured, right? <clears throat> but people sometimes ignored enslaved black people. 
right? So perhaps this quote unquote Negro man, which is how he's listed in the manuscripts, um, he could maybe he could move more invisibly amid the chaos of the British occupation and bring Van Dyke something to eat while he was in hiding. The British nevertheless discovered Van Dyke and arrested him on September 16th, angry about finding an American officer secreted in a private house. Uh, both sides hotly disputed what happened to Van Dyke next. They either allowed him to move about the city on parole or they immediately corralled him in close confinement. Then on the morning of September 21st, as the fire raged, a Negro man accosted a British artillery officer in the street and offered to show him a man that had set the city on fire. This officer followed uh, uh, this uh, African-American informant to Leary's house, searched it and found Van Dyke secreted in, the, in a closet of one of the bed chambers, which a young lady tried to prevent him going into. So this woman is hiding Van Dyke uh, 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 from British soldiers. The firefighter John Burns told a slightly different story, uh, but also pinpointed the timing of Van Dyke's arrest, not on September 16th before the fire, but September 21st, while the fire is going on. Uh, Burns said, he testified, I particularly remember that one Abraham Van Dyke, a captain of grenadiers in the American service, was found on the morning of the fire hid in the Leary's stables. So this would have been a pretty dramatic scene. Van Dyke cowering in the stables as firemen were tearing down the walls around him. Van Dyke later claimed that the Negro who brought him vittles had betrayed him. But was this on the 16th or was this on the 21st? Either way, the British had particular animus toward Van Dyke as an arch patriot, claimed that Van Dyke had previously threatened to set the city on fire, and they kept him in prison all the way from September of 1776 to April of 1778. In an odd twist to this story, a year and a half after that, Van Dyke killed a black Connecticut private in the snowy Morris, Morristown, New Jersey encampment in 1780. Then Van Dyke asks for a court martial where he was acquitted. By the war's end, Van Dyke had died, uh, you know, but it is really intriguing thing that he killed a, a black soldier on his own side, right? After having felt betrayed by, uh, you know, the, the black man who supposedly turned him into the British, even though these were almost certainly two different people. Um, the, the, the black person who he killed, I was able to find, uh, uh, find him in muster rolls and uh, 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 his name was Prince Pitkin. And he was enslaved by one of the first families of Connecticut. The last uh, governors of Connecticut before the Trumbulls were, were, were William Pitkins. And, uh, and William Pitkins' son, I found a document showing William Pitkins' son collected um, his last wages and effects and personal effects, Prince Pitkins' personal effects. So I found the document kind of testifying to, um, to his death. This incredibly sad story of a black soldier who had been serving in a Connecticut regiment killed by an officer on his own side, and that officer was then acquitted, right? Uh, it, you know, um, it, it's, it, it's just this it, a very bizarre um, uh, footnote to this story, one that I don't tell in the book, um, but that I think is, is really intriguing for thinking about the role that race plays um, in the American Revolution. We see Black men who served as informants for the British Army, and we also see Black men serving in Continental Army uniform. Uh, as part of it, and all, that, all of this came up during my research. You know, he, here I am studying this kind of like the, the scuzziest possible version of the military history of the American Revolution, right? This moment where they're, they're setting New York City on fire. And yet what emerges are all these really interesting stories about marginalized people um, who we don't often talk about when we talk about the Revolutionary War. All right, so this brings me to my last story. 
On June 6, uh, uh, 1777, a, um, oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me just show you. So here's the Morristown encampment. Um, oh, and I, uh, and I actually have, um, uh, I'm sorry, wait, why is this not showing what I think it's supposed to be showing? Um, I seem, I appear to be stuck. Um, that's not what I want. That's not, that's not what's showing on the screen. Ah, that's right. Okay. So, sorry. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to advance some slides. Um, So here's the Morristown pictures of the Morristown encampment and the um, and the huts that they built, uh, and here's Prince Pitkin's name on the muster roll. Um, this was a really intriguing find uh, because what I had to look at is who was the person who was killed on the exact date that uh, Van Dyke was supposed to, you know, it supposedly killed this private, um, and so that was what gave me the name. Um, and then here's the document that I was talking about where William Pitkin. Uh, collects his, his effects. I found this at the Connecticut Historical Society, and I just got very lucky that the top line of the archival listing said Prince Pitkin's name. Uh, okay, so let me get to my last story. Um, on June 17, 6, 1777, a condemned rebel spy named Abraham Patton confessed that he had helped to burn New York City. At first, this document was all I knew. Uh, but I since learned, with the help of genealogists actually, that Patton was born to a large Scots-Irish Presbyterian family that had moved from Pennsylvania to the Catawba River Valley in the Carolinas when he was a child. This was the same region where Andrew Jackson had grown up. By the late 1750s, Patton was evidently old enough to sign his name to a backcountry Protestant dissenters petition criticizing the established Anglican church. Uh, Abraham Patton's father, James, was a storekeeper who had died in debt in the Carolinas. And from, and from 1763 to 68, Abraham Patton worked at least for a time as a wheelwright and owned about 100 acres in Sadsbury Township, Pennsylvania. He married Mar Martha Crawford in Philadelphia in 1766. And by the end of the decade, he had moved with her to Baltimore. Over the next five years, he celebrated the baptisms of three newborn daughters. He pursued a couple of runaway white servants and in January 1775, he sold a young black man named Sam to Conrad Dahl in Frederick County. One gets the impression of a man who was restless, ruthless, and reckless. He was in New York during the summer of 1776 during the Continental Army's uh, occupation of New York City. The New York Gazette and Weekly Mercury notes a letter that had been left for him at the local post office on July 15th. By the time of his hanging, almost a year later, German officers were calling him a rebel captain who had passed himself off as a merchant. And indeed, a Philadelphia newspaper of January 5th, 1777, noted an unclaimed letter for Captain Abraham Patton. But I haven't found him in any military records, only in these newspaper references and in the references of these German officers. Um, a rebel prisoner of war in New York City in early 1777 uh, recalled that Patton was under the disguise of a zealous royalist. He did crucial spying between New York City and New Jersey for General Washington until he was caught at the British encampment in New Brunswick, New Jersey on June 4th, King George III's birthday. He was trying to bribe a British grenadier um, and he was also hatching a plot to set fire to the powder magazines in New Brunswick in coordination with an American attack. 
Now back to the newspaper account, the New York Gazette reported, at the gallows, he acknowledged all the charges brought against him and said he was a principal in setting fire to New York, but would not accuse any of his accomplices. One Hessian officer observed the enthusiasm of this spy was so great that as he came to the ladder and was about to climb it, he pulled the white hood over his own eyes himself. Patton then said, I die for liberty and do it gladly because my cause is just. A German lieutenant reported that the general reaction to Patton's demeanor was, this spy supposedly died in the most noble manner and his death has been celebrated as a sacrifice for freedom. This is his enemy's talk. So like Nathan Hale or John Andre, Patton nobly died for his cause and was admired by other gentlemen officers. So I think this guy deserves to be at least as famous as Nathan Hale. Uh, you know, they were both probably quoting from the same play, right? Uh, um, uh, actually, Addison's Cato. Um, anyway, when, but, the, but the really interesting part of the story to me is that when Washington read this newspaper account about uh, Patton's hanging, he then sent a kind of private eulogy to John Hancock, who was still serving as president of the Continental Congress. Patton, Washington wrote, conducted himself with great fidelity to our cause rendering services and has fallen a sacrifice in promoting her interest. So both Washington and Hancock apparently knew about Patton's espionage activities, and perhaps this included his alleged role in having set fire to New York City. Washington wrote, his family well deserves the generous notice of Congress. Um, you, you know, the New York Gazette had mentioned his wife and four children. And yet Washington writes, perhaps a public act of generosity, considering the character he was in, might not be so eligible as a private donation. So in other words, Congress can't make any public acknowledgement of Patton as an arsonist in their employ. Uh, Patriot leaders could only memorialize him by slipping some money to mark the Patton under the table. One wonders, were Washington and Hancock trying to close the book on their complicity in burning New York City? After all, you, you know, back in October of 1776, Washington had privately praised the good honest fellow who had set the fire. Uh, nevertheless, he couldn't take public responsibility for burning New York City. It was too controversial. Americans wanted to be accepted in the community of nations. You know, as it says in the Declaration of Independence, they wanted the United States to be among the powers of the earth. They preferred to let their enemy, to, to, to tag their enemies with atrocity narratives, not brag about having committed atrocities themselves. That was something that they were trying to say was not the American way. So uh, in conclusion, what do we make of these four or five incendiaries and the other indeterminate number of people who might have helped to burn New York City? Some of the people I've talked about today were white men, officers even, who came from the radical Congregationalist or Presbyterian tradition and were probably recognized for their radical zeal, uh, even if the Continental leadership had to kind of disavow the fire, right? Uh, uh, you know, the American army and, 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 and rebel politicians were still willing to harness the radicalism of the Protestant dissenters who made up so much of New England and the Scots-Irish backcountry, et cetera, et cetera. So acknowledged, but sometimes kept at arm's length. Although Continental army officers like uh, Washington wanted an orderly army, there were also portions of the armed forces who sowed chaos, disobeyed orders, and engaged in non-traditional methods of war. As radical actors, they were willing to consider radical methods, including the deployment of women and non-whites as spies and saboteurs. A woman could manipulate prevailing gender assumptions. As the scholar Judith Van Buskirk writes, considered weak and childlike, 
females could go where few males dared because they were considered no threat. So the first incendiary's ability to exploit her presumed incapacity, right, was exactly what made her dangerous. Similarly, as we've seen, people of color could often get around the city without being noticed right away. And this worked for the New London, the New London County mulatto, at least until he was caught and thrown into a burning building on Broad Street. But it didn't work for, um, for Van Dyke, right, uh, uh, who tried to send this uh, Black person out to bring him food. But then this Black person apparently betrayed his hiding spot. The American rebel leadership had every reason to ignore the participation of non-whites and women in, in the revolutionary movement, even as they were at pains to disclaim any responsibility for the burning of New York City. For decades now, neo-progressive historians of early America have identified class consciousness amidst the political revolution that detached America from the British Empire. These historians have tried to locate different sources of American radicalism. New York City's artisan class, the somewhat communitarian ethos of New England, the Scots-Irish Presbyterians of the backcountry, and people of color. Some of these groups formed the core of the revolutionary movement, while others, including women and non-whites, were kind of kept at arm's length. But it's worth remembering that the elite-led revolutionary movement, however conservative, also contained these more radical elements. And it's my hope that I will convince readers that this radical fringe did its utmost to burn New York City to the ground in 1776. So that is it for my prepared remarks. Um, uh, but I, uh, I have a lot more that I can say about the fire. And, uh, and I'm really happy to answer any questions that people have about the who, what, when, where, why, and how of it. Um, this is a project, uh, this is a topic I've been interested in for 25 years. Um, and all I'll say to the people who are here in the audience is uh, to wait for the microphone to be uh, brought around um, so that everyone can, um, can hear your question. Uh, and I know um, uh, that, that Todd is going to be um, uh, adding some questions from the, the DJ audience as well. Uh, yeah. So, so, this is, okay, so this is just following the Battle of Long Island. So there's about 1,200 American captives, right? And this is before the prison ships are there, right? Yeah. And so presumably there's about 1,200 guys that are locked up in New York City that all have been presumably burned alive if the Patriots start a fire, right? Um, or are they somewhere else? Yeah, some of the prisoners were in Brooklyn. Um, there were actually captives from the Quebec expedition on ships in the British Harbor. They weren't necessarily prison ships, but there were ships being used there. Um, there was probably a much smaller number of American prisoners who were being kept in, say, the provost jail, uh, et cetera. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, so the, uh, you know, this is the thing though. Um, there is some suggestion that the idea of setting New York City on fire, that the, the goal might have been to kill British soldiers with the fire, right? And so then presumably, yeah, well, but are you putting your own prisoners at risk? But what I would say is, for the most part in the 18th century, you could outrun an urban fire. Um, and you, you know, presumably, the British, uh, the, the, the British who were in charge of the prison, if if the prison was at risk of being burned, they would have let those prisoners out, you know, for humane reasons, um, and everybody would have been able to get out before the actual building caught on fire. I mean, um, so I didn't really get into the conditions of the fire. For people who think that the fire was an accident, one of the things they point to is how strong the wind was. 
Um, if any of you have ever seen the video of the Paradise Fire in California, you know that uh, in dry conditions, right, what's called flaming brands by fire scientists, right? The branches catch fire, the wind picks up, it can blow those, those flaming branches and spread a fire that way. Now, most of the houses in New York City at the time had wooden shingles. Same deal, right? The, the, you know, that's what may have um, set Trinity Church on fire, although some people say they saw a person with a torch on the roof before the fire broke out. So again, there's evidence on both sides of that. Um, but even with flaming brands, even with the spread of the wind and dry condition, for the most part, fatalities in 18th century fires are not super high, right? When we think of high fatality fires, they tend to come from a modern era um, in cities with really poor building codes in, in conditions of crowding and heights of buildings that were much greater than you would have seen in the 18th century. So Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, uh, the Richmond Theater Fire, where people were actually trapped in a building and killed. I, you, what you're asking, I think, is whether the Americans really would have set New York City on fire, even if it meant that dozens of their own guys might have been trapped and killed. I don't think that that, that, that would have been under serious consideration. I think that the prisoners of war um, might have might well have been able to escape uh, before that. Uh, this gentleman first. Uh, just curious, why did it take the British about two weeks to cross the river? And also, I forgot the timeline was the Boston evacuation before or after? Oh, well, well before uh, St. Patrick's Day in 1776. Yeah, I mean, uh, Washington picks up most of the army uh, and uh, and they march. Some of them either set sail in New London and come to New York City, or they march, uh, or I think some of them marched overland as well. So yes, at this point, when when the British evacuated Boston, they went to Halifax for a little while uh, while they waited for more reinforcements and Hessian reinforcements to come in, and then they launched this forty thousand man expedition right at New York Harbor, and they take Long Island first. So a lot of kind of armchair historians have kind of criticized how, right? You had this massive army, uh, you, you had uh, a Navy that way overpowered anything that Washington was gonna be able to put up. Why didn't you just, you know, kind of dominate that and crush Washington's army from the get-go? Perhaps the British could have ended the whole war right there if they had captured Washington or destroyed his army, et cetera, et cetera. But what I think there's a historian named David Smith who kind of says, well, listen, you know, or, and they say, well, maybe, Howe was too timid. He had witnessed the Battle of Bunker Hill, you know, and the British troops marching up the hill and then officers being, and, and soldiers being mowed down by the hundreds. You know, maybe this made the British really cautious. And in a way it did, right? Like what we have to remember is they don't have satellite imagery. They don't know what's over the next hill. They don't know whether Washington has concentrated his forces. So they really tried to kind of, and, and Howe also knew he wasn't gonna be getting more reinforcements from parliament. The army he had was the army he had to conquer the entire 13 colonies with. So he tried to be conservative with how he deployed his men. Therefore, it actually looks kind of prudent to wait a couple of weeks before you um, do this massive organizational challenge of getting thousands of your guys over the East River from Newtown Creek uh, to Kipps Bay, New York, in order to, um, you know, in order to dominate Manhattan Island. So that's why there's the delay between the battle. Washington. Sure, but uh, but Washington knew that 
you know, what was behind him was his own guys, right? He wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't, he wasn't having to do a hostile landing. He, you see what I mean? Uh, and he takes advantage of the weather and he's able to, uh, to escape. So Washington gets very lucky, whereas Howe was trying to be very cautious. This gentleman up front, I think, who has. And then we'll take a question after that one i read a while back that uh just before general uh, wolf captured quebec in the french and indian war he had his soldiers sail up and down the st lawrence river burning all the uh the french towns to put pressure on the quebec garrison and i'm wondering whether some of the soldiers who served under in new york in 1776 served under wolf earlier and could have been involved in the burning of these towns so was the british engaged in a little hip hop no, regarding arson? There's there's some background that I can give you about incendiarism for sure. There's actually a closer example, which is that when the Americans invaded Canada in 1775, 1776, they burned to the suburbs of Quebec then too. So um, that was a sort of typical thing to do. You've got the fortified part of Quebec, and then you've got some of the outline of places that were uh, more vulnerable. There are lots of reasons to burn civilian homes during war. Maybe there's a sniper in, in that building. Maybe they're just in the way of, you know, of what you're trying to do. Uh, maybe you want to do it to intimidate the other side. Um, you know, it was one of those things where, um, according to your enlightenment values, you tried not to do it. And you said, well, we don't do this wantonly. We only do it, you know, because we have a very good reason. Um, but on the other hand, uh, so on the one hand, you say it's not an enlightened thing to do. But on the other hand, 18th century armies did it all the time. So one of the reasons why I think New Englanders were particularly keen to burn New York City in 1776 is that they wanted revenge for three towns that the British had already burned. One was uh, Charlestown, Massachusetts during the Battle of Bunker Hill, which you could see from Boston, like this entire town of hundreds of buildings burning uh, when the, you know, the British soldiers set it on fire because there were Americans taking hot shots at them from that, the civilian houses. The second was Falmouth, Maine in October of 1775. And the third was um, Jamestown on Connecticut Island, with again within sight of Newport, Rhode Island, which was the fifth, you know, largest town in the colonies. The other fire, and this is really interesting, right? So the Declaration of Independence complains about King George III having burned our towns. The fourth major fire that happened before um, the burning of New York City, well, there are a couple of others, but the fourth major fire was the burning of Norfolk, Virginia, which was the sixth largest town in the thirteen colonies. The British began cannonading it on New Year's Day. And they burned about 15% of the city. And then the rebels sent Virginia and, and North Carolina militiamen in, who then burned the rest of the town, burned 85% of Norfolk. But you know what it says in the newspapers? The British burned Norfolk. And, you know, and Washington and others then write, oh my gosh, right? Like we thought this was just going to be a New England cause. But now with a southern town having been burned, all sorts of southerners are also going to join the movement for independence because, of course, this was six months before July 4th. So there were elements of the American army who thought that it was the British who were the destroyers, and they may have been looking for revenge on the, uh, on the early morning hours of September 21st, 1776. That may have been another motivation for burning the city of others. Okay, a lot of questions online. Okay. Um, so Donald has read your book, and he said you placed the hanging of Nathan Hale into the background of the fire. Um, can you elaborate more on Hale? Yeah, so a lot of people associate Hale with the fire because he was hanged the day after the fire on September 22nd, 1776, uh, basically up the road from, uh, from New York City. 
And so there is speculation that, well, did they hang him because he was a saboteur and they accused him of having participated in the burning? But historians, I think, have concluded that he hadn't made it all the way to New York City, and so he couldn't have been involved in the fire. Um, there was one uh, his, his historian, uh, somebody who used to be the, a man, the Civil War veteran who used to be the curator of Morris Trumel Mansion in Upper Manhattan. Um, he wrote a book called um, uh, called The Jew Mel Mansion in the early part of the 20th century, where he says that Nathan Hale was the New England captain mentioned in, in loyalist newspapers who had been caught and killed for having set New York City on fire. I don't think that that's true. I don't think Nathan Hale was involved in burning the fire. Some historians have speculated, well, maybe he wasn't directly responsible for the fire, but the British scapegoated him anyway because they were so mad about New York City having been burnt. I think it's just that, you know, they caught Nathan Hale, they had him dead to rights, he confessed to being a spy, the British kind of had no choice but to hang him. Um, the really interesting thing, I mean, it is interesting that they kill some people on the spot by throwing them into burning buildings or bayoneting them to death on the night of the fire. And it's interesting that they hang Nathan Hale. What's really interesting though to me is that the British evidently took a bunch of other people prisoner during the fire or immediately afterwards. Some say they rounded up 20, some say they rounded up 100 or 200. But the really interesting thing is that they appear to have let most of them go. And so a lot of historians have pointed to this and said, yeah, the British had nothing. They had no good evidence. They had to just let all of these people out. But I think the British basically concluded, look, we already killed and punished a few people on the spot. We made an example, right? We don't have fantastic evidence about the rest of these people. And we're trying to make nice and reconcile the Americans to their allegiance. Let's just let them go, right? Uh, that, that's really the only choice we have. We're not gonna be able to come up with some kind of trials that are gonna satisfy everybody. And we don't wanna kill an innocent person, execute an innocent person by mistake. So we're just gonna kind of let them go. I mean, executions during the Revolutionary War, they happened, but they're not that common. And you know, 18th century criminal justice basically said, you don't hang everybody in sight. You, you hang one specific person to make an example of them in the hope that that will cow everybody else, right? Make, make them stop thieving, make them stop spying, you know, whatever, uh, whatever else it is. So, um, so I, I do have some interesting things to say about people who were executed or captured after the fire. Um, uh, yeah, and so I, I have a couple of, a whole chapter about that actually. Um, Jane asked, how many incendiaries have you been able to account for either by name or by reference in a newspaper or another source? Yeah, I have kind of deliberately kept this vague because what we have is this patchwork of sources, right? And nothing that's incredibly definite. Um, there's some suggestion that a man named William Smith, William Smith, how am I gonna track down a name like that? I've been responsible for, for setting the fire. The really interesting thing is there's a loyalist who reads that in a newspaper over in London, a guy named Samuel Kerwin. And he's like, William Smith, I know who that guy is. And, and the guy he's talking about is Abigail Adams's brother who is a bit of a kind of drunk and ne'er-do-well, actually. Um, and I actually don't know where Abigail Adams' Adams's brother was during the fire. He might have been around there, but that newspaper account says that he was killed during the fire. And that William Smith, Abigail Adams' brother, was, you know, didn't die in September 1776. So it can't be that guy. But like, what am I supposed to do with a name like William Smith? Another one, and this one I actually have more definite information about, his name is Richard Brown. Like, you know, like, you know, you want to talk about it being a genealogist, right? And trying to track these names, really difficult to do. Now, I think I know who that guy is, that he was a Pennsylvania officer. Um, he was definitely, he also, interesting story, captured during the Battle of Long Island, 
what's he doing, you, you know, being caught supposedly having set the fire? Was he let out on parole? And so he was wandering the streets when the, when the fire began. And so he actually could have been one of these incendiaries. Hard to know, but also I think someone who was evidently killed on the spot. So I only have a few definite names like that. The rest of what I have are suggestions and things that I'm trying to put together. And I don't even have a definite number for the number of incendiaries that were killed. Maybe it was eight is what I say in the book, as many as eight. Um, someone asked a three-part question. Can you describe a bit more about the destruction that occurred? Uh, what efforts were made to extinguish the fires and what endangered properties were saved? Yeah, um, uh, so I should give this basic statistic, about 20% of New York City was burned during this fire. Uh, I calculated this with, um, with the geographer who, uh, who made up the three maps that I have in the book. I think about 20% of the urbanized part of New York City was, uh, was destroyed by this fire. I'm sorry, can you ask the other two questions again? Uh, um, what efforts were made to extinguish the yes. fire and what properties were saved? Yeah, um, it's interesting. There, there were newspaper accounts saying which of the fancy mansions on Broadway had survived the fire, uh, in addition to St. Paul's Cathedral. Like it was sort of like, oh, well, at least we saved this mansion and that mansion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the places that, uh, that we know were burned were the Customs House, uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, Trinity Church, and uh, 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 you know, a, a few mansions on Broadway, including the mansion of General James Robertson, who was the commandant of New York City. He had been actually living in New York City prior to the war. He was the barrack master general. Um, and a lot of poorer houses that were on Trinity Church lands behind, uh, west of Broadway. So actually like, you know, wooden, less expensive housing that working class people had had to construct for themselves on these properties that they had 99 year leases on. So that's the housing stock that was destroyed. Now, in terms of firefighting efforts, um, there, uh, firefighters had been appointed. And so there were New York City firefighters who had experience in New York on the scene. The person who took charge of the efforts was James Robertson, the commandant of the city. So, and he actually later says, hey, I was in charge of the engines and the fire was about to move east toward all the really valuable stuff on the East River, like all the wharfage and commercial areas and shipbuilding areas and places where we could repair ships. I made sure that the fire didn't go that way. And instead what the fire did was raged up Broadway and burnt my own house. So I actually, you know, again, this, this rhetoric of self-sacrifice that worked for the British too, He's like, you know, I, um, et cetera. And actually uh, many people were impressed, including some patriots that British soldiers and sailors were brought in to help with firefighting efforts. Um, uh, that they so uh, so definitely the the people on the ground were doing their utmost to fight a fire, but that's what you did in the 18th century anyway. There was a small number of men who knew how to work the engines and were experts at trying to throw water onto the fire. Everybody else was supposed to pitch in either to save um, uh, save property or to pass buckets of water along. Uh, from water sources to the engine to throw more water onto the fire. So in the absence of most of the town's civilians, I think ordinary soldiers and sailors were playing that role uh, in the early morning hours of September 21st. Matt? Do you think given the anger of the British about the attempted burning of the city, do you think that had anything to do with burning the capital in the War of 1812? <laughs> 
Uh, well, the, the burning of Washington, D.C. was a direct response to the Americans having burned York in what's now Toronto. So they had, they had much more immediate reasons. Uh, well, you know, what's really interesting is that both the Americans and the British have very good reasons to forget about this fire, the fire of 1776. For the Americans, it's that they didn't want anyone to pay too close attention to the fact that the Americans probably burned it. But the British, I think, also were like, hey, it was under our watch. We probably should have prevented this from happening. And also, our soldiers killed a bunch of people on the spot, and that doesn't really look good either. So both the British and the Americans eventually kind of buried this story as much as, as they could. And in fact, if you look about 100 years later, you'll see British historians saying, Washington, such an admirable guy. We don't think he burned New York City either, you know, which is something that American historians are arguing until they're blue in the face. Washington couldn't have done it. He was such an outstanding guy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, look, he asked Congress for permission and Congress said no, supposedly. I, I have all sorts of stuff about that. But, um, uh, but what's interesting is that even British historians are kind of buying that line by the time you get well into the 19th century. So this is, a, this is an event that historians have really conspired to say, this is not historically significant. And my book is trying to convince us, no, there actually may have been something historically significant going on here. Why can't we acknowledge that this really may well have been uh, something deliberate that the Americans have done? Uh, we do have a, another question from the audience here. So do we know in 1776, what percentage of New York was loyalist? This might give us a sense of, of what the political meanings yeah. were within the city. This is a matter of hot dispute among historians. It's pretty well known that Brooklyn, much of Queens, and Staten Island was very loyalist. Other parts of New York State were quite mixed. New York City itself, right, like pre-1898, right, New York City is just Manhattan. New York City seems to have had elements, like all of the big cities, of both ardent loyalists and ardent patriots. You know, we didn't have Gallup polling that back then. We can't see into people's hearts. And so it's very difficult to know, like, what percentage. Um, we know that a lot of uh, that, that, that New York basically helped found the Sons of Liberty, actually, in the aftermath of the Stamp Act crisis of 1765. Uh, we know that uh, many of the great crowd leaders like John Lamb and Marinus Willett and Isaac Sears, you know, marched off to war, right, joined the Patriot Army, uh, Alexander McDougall, right, you know. Um, so we know that there was a strong patriot contingent, but we also know that there were plenty of loyalists in New York City who said, hey, we've got a good thing going trading with the British Empire. Why would we want to give that up? Um, and then there were plenty of people in between probably who were trimmers and just wanted to be left alone, right? So it's very difficult to kind of say what were the firm political commitments of this person versus uh, that person. There are some people who want to claim in part because New York City was the last place that the British evacuated that New York City was a uniquely loyalist place and a center of loyalism. That is what it became during the revolution, but it's not necessarily how everyone felt in say 1775. Um, so, you know, the answer like, and, and there, so there are historians who claim, hey, you know, New York City had just as ardent a patriot movement as Philadelphia or Boston did. But the reality is, is that New York was a, a mix. <laughs> what a lot of New Yorkers mostly cared about was business. Um, and, uh, and, and you really see a split. Now, it is true, however, that in 1775, 1776, in part because the New York delegation dragged its feet about independence, that New York City did have a reputation for being more loyalist, especially among New Englanders and some other outsiders. So the, the, New York City definitely had a stereotype for being more loyalist. What's not clear is if it was actually more loyalist. 
than other parts of the, of the rebelling colonies. Um, so it's a, it, sorry, I have to give the kind of like academic historian's answer because it's been, there's been a little bit of ink spilled on this and it's actually a little bit complicated. Uh, there's a question in the back. I read the book, I liked it a lot. Um, when you're from the UBG, it seemed like you were given evidence that the Americans did, and it seemed like you came to that conclusion. So, why do a lot of historians and authors say nobody knows what happened or who caused the rebellion? Yeah, I mean, historians are a cautious bunch, and they should be. Right, um, you know, there's the old journalist saying, "If your mother says she loves you, check it out." Right? Historians try to bring that level of skepticism, uh, you know, and so I, I think that explains it to some degree. But actually, I have my own little like kind of like I, there are two mustache twirling villains about why historians think that the fire was an accident. The first is Washington, right? Some of the first documents, public primary source documents published from the Revolution were were from Washington's papers and Congress's papers in the 1780s. Right in the 1780s, they published the correspondence between Washington and Congress, where Washington says, "Hey, the British are about to take New York City. Should I leave them for them intact, or should I burn the place before I leave?" And Congress supposedly says, "Don't do it." Now, whether they also sent him a private letter that said, "Go ahead and do it and burn this letter too while you're at it," um, we'll never know. And I can't argue from an absence of evidence, but it is true that every historian who writes about Washington points to that exchange and say, well, see, Washington didn't do it. When the fire happened, he was seven miles away. He had, you know, he was a, a great guy. He wasn't a Napoleon or a Caesar or a Cromwell. He had asked, you, you know, the civilian authorities permission. The civilian authorities said, no, not only did Washington obey, obey him, but apparently all of his men obeyed him as well. Although if you look at the army of 1776, it's incredibly mutinous, tons of desertion and a lot of disobedience. And Washington is asking, hey, can I up the whip count from 39 lashes to 100, you know, because my soldiers are so disobedient? Do we really think that all these soldiers listened to Washington, even if Washington were inclined to say, don't burn the city, which he wasn't, right? He says, you know, he, he later writes to his cousin and this letter wasn't discovered by historians, well-known to historians until the 1940s. He writes to his cousin after the fire, um, I think that Congress telling me not to burn New York City was one of the worst mistakes it's ever made. However, Providence or some good, honest fellow, by which means God or some good, honest fellow, has done what we were uh, you know, going to do ourselves. So Washington knew that burning the, the city was a good idea, and his only regret was that more of it didn't burn. He says, however, enough of it remains to answer their purposes. So again, like you could put a lot of stock into Washington asking Congress's permission and Congress saying no. I kind of think it needs to be taken in a wider context. The other culprit is another New York City tavern keeper named David Grimm. David Grimm was a German American. He's serving, he's, he's actively involved in Luther, the Lutheran church. He's serving drinks to the Hessians throughout the war. Um, and he's done these really beautiful maps of, uh, of New York City that a lot of historians have relied on. And they kind of have characterized David Grimm as this kindly old antiquarian. And Grimm has this account of the city that really makes it look not only like that the fire was an accident, but also that the British were very arbitrary in the people that they had executed on the night of the fire. Now, Grimm was not a kindly old antiquarian. He was a one percenter. He helped uh, to found some of New York City's premier financial institutions. And in fact, it was so hot for him as a loyalist that he had to go to a spy in Germany for a year. And when he comes back, he's finding that patriots are about to seize his property and it's to talk his way out of this. And then in the 1790s, when he, he's on the federalist side of some political issue, some newspaper writer writes, hey, let's remember this guy had supported the British during the war. So I kind of think, but he, but he integrates back into New York City's history and basically becomes one of New York City's 
city fathers. And I think as a kind of reintegrated loyalist or a reconciled loyalist, he had every reason to give a kind of pro-American version of the fire. But all of the early New York City histories quote Grimm's account, because Grimm gives this weirdly precise figure for the number of houses that had burned, 493. I don't know where he gets that, but he had been there and he was this old guy telling this story in the 1820s. Everybody believes him. I mean, I really think it was probably closer to 800 buildings. But again, because he has this weirdly precise figure, historians from the 19th century onward looked at this guy and been like, oh, here's a particularly trustworthy source. Let's repeat that one over and over in the Johnson volume, in the Stokes volume, in the Valentine's Manual, in, you know, in, in Booth's history of New York City, and you know, every you know, older 19th century history of New York City repeats that story over and all over. So I think because of David Grimm and Washington, there's been enough disinformation and noise in the sources that have kind of led historians to be like, eh, I don't really feel confident going out on a limb and saying that the Americans burned New York City. Um, so I'm sorry, it's a long answer, but it's something that like I've had to fight my way through. I have this long, like 12,000 word historiographical essay. And then I was trying to like keep the book a little tighter. So I cut it, but I've, I've tried to make it come back in some online pieces that I've written, uh, which I can point you to. Um, they're freely available. I think we have time for one more question. Sorry, we're not getting to all of them. There's a lot. Um, but Lydia said that you mentioned in the beginning of your talk that Washington had no problem burning down Native American settlements. Yeah. And she was wondering if you had evidence of that um, and that if he did that maliciously. Uh, she was curious. I mean, the, the biggest evidence is the Sullivan Clinton expedition of 1779, where he orders units of the Continental Army to go into Iroquois country and burn as many towns as possible. They burn cornfields, they burn frame houses with glass window panes that the Iroquois had constructed. Uh, uh, they don't, uh, the Iroquois themselves fled in advance of this, um, but, and, and the design, the, 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 the point of this expedition was to send the British send the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee people fleeing and hungry into, you know, to Fort Niagara where the British would have to support them. And the other goal was to dis dispossess uh, the Iroquois of their lands so that, uh, that that space could be made for white settlers. Uh, there was a similar expedition against the Cherokee in 1776, not ordered by state authorities, not necessarily by Washington himself, uh, but the best evidence of Washington, who's, who's Whose, in, whose Iroquois name was Concatorius or Town Destroyer, uh, which was actually a, a, a name that had been given to his great grandfather. Um, but uh, but the Seneca leader, Corn Planter, you know, later says to Washington in 1790, like it used to be that when we said your name, Town Destroyer, like small children would cling to the necks of their mothers in fear. Um, and, and this was Washington's reputation among uh, the indigenous people. But was he doing it maliciously? I, you know, um, you know, historians don't necessarily like to talk in terms of good and evil, but the, you know, part, one, part of the goal of the revolutionary movement and Washington, the Western land speculator himself, right, was that the, that the white settlers of America wanted to push past the Appalachians and begin settling indigenous land. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they use the Revolutionary War as their ticket to do that. They get a Treaty of Paris that gives the <laughs> Americans claims to all the land east of the Mississippi and we, you know, and what white settlers are going to spend the next few decades doing is, um, you know, is 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 doing their best to push the Native Americans off of that land and um, and appropriate it for themselves. That's that's part of what the revolutionary movement is, frankly. 
Um, you, we can have disputes about, you know, from the 1619 project about to what degree the American Revolution was in support of slavery. I think you can kind of go both ways with that, actually. But as far as um, possessing Indian lands, that is definitely a goal uh, of, of much of the revolutionary movement. You know, people, people talk about the Stamp Act and the taxes. What they don't talk about is the proclamation line of 1763 is also having been a, a major cause of, um, of the revolution. These Western settlers who want you know, want to get the British out of their way um, and, and begin appropriating this land. The British were trying to kind of keep peace on the frontier because they had just fought the Seven Years' War and didn't want to get involved in more of this kind of expensive frontier warfare. Uh, but, the, you know, but, but, but the colonists themselves are like, we don't care about your geopolitics. We just want to squat on this land, speculate in this land, um, carve up indigenous land for ourselves. Okay, well, thank you everybody for these great questions. Thank you so much for that wonderful talk. Thank you for all of you for joining us in person and on Zoom and for submitting your questions and for supporting both the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society and Francis Tavern Museum. We heard a bit at the beginning of all the wonderful upcoming events you can have um, with the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society. If you're interested in Francis Tavern's events, you can visit francistavernmuseum.org. If you want to hear more about loyalists in New York City, our June lecture, Monday, June 12th, is going to be on that very topic. And you can register for that on our website. Um, so once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for spending your Thursday evening with us. And we hope to see you all again soon. Thank you.